0: This is the Master Cinema Cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Threese. And joining us today from the 24 frames per second blog, we have Sam Inglis. Sam, many thanks for coming on board with us today.
1: Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm excited to be
0: on board. Okay, I think before we kind of uh, have a kind of uh, talk about kind of what Sam, what he does and everything like that, Joachim, we just want to go through the kind of what's going on in the world of Master Cinema.
2: Yeah, it's been quite some time since we last recorded and there's been uh, a lot of development. Um... The uh, Maurice Pialas film Van Gogh and uh, Douglas Sirk's A Time to Love and A Time to Die, they are both available for pre-orders on Eureka's office site. And uh, Masters of Cinema, they have also uh, announced October and uh, November releases. So we can go through those uh, chronologically. Yep. In October, uh, there is the Dr. Mabuse der Spieler from Fritz Lang 1922 film. Uh, which will be released in a Blu-ray-only edition, uh, Standard and Steelbook. Um, so this is the first one in the Mabuse series, and hopefully they will release The uh, Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse, the last one as well.
0: Yeah, um, um, that's one I, I mean, I've, I've, I've pre-ordered, the Steelbook version of that one. Sam, is that a film you're familiar with at all?
1: I'm not familiar with it, but I uh, reviewed uh, Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Uh um i think for 24 fps i can't remember exactly where that was um and i really enjoyed it so that's something that i'm looking forward to discovering definitely
0: yeah and um, as well i mean i always kind of enjoy the kind of the steelbook um editions that they release and uh, i think they've done a pretty pretty incredible job actually so far with the kind of the the, the last release in that series and uh, yeah very much looking forward to that and what else have we got here Kim?
2: We have a Western joining the series. Um, it is uh, Red River, the Howard Hawks film from 1948, uh, which will be released uh, as a Blu-ray. Uh, no steelbook on this one. Yeah, I've not actually seen Red River.
0: Have you ever uh,
2: I think I've seen it in the uh, Western class I took at university, but um, I can't remember it very well.
1: Westerns? haven't always been my thing but i actually want to discover more i saw the searches for the first time a little while ago and loved that so uh red river uh being a howard hawks fan as well is definitely on my list so again that's uh, another one i'm looking forward to
0: yeah i did i did a howard hawks uh u uh unit when i was at university and i kind of i was it, it kind of howard hawks me out for a few years and um i haven't kind of been back to them but certainly yeah i do i really enjoy westerns and um I, you know, red river is kind of generally considered to be one of one of the best as i
2: understand so you know i'll be particularly looking forward to that so what else have we got joe okay so the final release in october is perhaps the most controversial one it's caused quite an uproar on the forums i've seen it is the late misoguchi set which includes eight films from 1951 to 1956 and it will be released on Blu-ray on the 21st of October. Uh, it includes Ayosama, Ugetsu, Monogatari, Sancho Dayu, Gion uh, Those four releases have already been released uh, on Blu-ray in the Masters of cinema. So there's been quite a lot of discussion as to whether or not it is a correct or proper way to release uh, this box set when you're already including films that have been released. You're basically making people buy the same films over again. But the box set, it will cost around 40, 45 quid. So you're basically getting the first four films for free and you're getting a booklet that is going to be around 200 pages I think and if they were going to split it up into individual releases they would have to truncate these booklets to um, smaller sizes so yeah I don't don't know uh, if there's much of an argument to be made that MOC is trying to trying to take advantage of uh, us fans I think they're just trying to do the best they can yeah, I. Don't, I mean,
0: it's these kind of debates, and they kind of they have me kind of smacking head against a brick wall, to be honest with you, because it's like no one's forcing anyone to buy no. these, you know, and that's it. It's not. It's not like you know you have to do it, and I mean so what you know you kind of might be double dipping a little bit you're going to get a load of stuff for, you know, you're know you going to get more anyway and you know what perhaps just don't buy it when it comes out straight away one you know perhaps wait a little bit it might come down in price or pick it up secondhand from like you know amazon trader or something i don't know but you know i mean i pre-ordered it i didn't even think about it to be honest with you and like, like i said i find it so frustrating when people kind of get up in arms about that it's like you know, wanting to kind of have their cake and eat it in a way you know film fans you know i, I love kind of box sets and things like that and you know i I've, I've, i mean i when i started buying blu-rays i started double dipping on dvds where i had i, I already double dip on blu-rays now if, <laughs> if i see a box set you know i don't really care and it's just sort of yeah it really kind of gets on my nerves um sam are you kind of familiar with any of those films at all? Uh,
1: i am again i i reviewed um the two earlier mizuguchi releases for uh cinemart and they really took me by surprise i i wasn't expecting to enjoy them as, as much as i did um Particularly, Sancho Dayu, uh, Sancho the Bailiff, uh, I thought was a tremendous film. So I'm really interested in this box set. But as somebody who has to, you know, work on quite a tight budget, it does rub a bit the wrong way that you have to buy stuff again. Um, but I I understand both sides of that argument, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean I'm looking at it on on Amazon now, and you can pre-order it for thirty eight pounds. So you know, if you were gonna if you're gonna buy those films individually anyway, the ones you haven't got, it would probably cost that much anyway. So Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I I think for what you get, I mean, uh, it's, I I, I can't really argue, I think it's a fantastic deal. I mean, and if you haven't got the films already, you know, what a bargain you're going to get anyway. And um, yeah, I like the fact that kind of Must Cinema are kind of going, you know, certainly doing these kind of Blu-ray box sets, because they they did a few on the kind of the DVD releases. And yeah, it's always, they do look quite good on the shelf. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it.
2: Another thing worth mentioning is that uh, this will be a limited set, so it'll only be uh, 2,000 units available, and each will get an individual number for the box set. So, uh, And thanks to Dave Walker, who tweeted uh, me about this. And uh, also, we can say that um, they're close to the end of their licensing period for these eight films, and they have no intention to renew them. So. If you don't get one of these two thousand box sets, you won't be able to get any of the releases, and also the individual releases will be going out of print. So you might want to hang on, to- hang on to them, even if you get the box set, because uh, they will be out of print.
0: Yeah, so you see it as an investment. That's the yeah. way I'd look at it. Because if, if, <laughs> if they're going to be, this is how I would justify it to myself. You know, I'm going to say, "Oh, well, I'll buy these," because you know, in a, in a few years when they're kind of out of print, you know, they're going to go through the roof. I mean, I was looking at. Um, buying the third man on blu-ray the other day from criterion and that's out of print and it's like 200 pounds to buy Hmm. new now and um you know it it, get in there buy them you know and uh you know treasure them and uh you'll see them go up in value i mean it's uh it's a no-brainer to me but i remember back in the old days of
1: vhs and, and the beginnings of dvd walking around uh london and seeing in some of the second-hand shops these old videotapes that i had going for 50 80 quid uh, because they weren't on DVD yet, and they have been out of print on uh, on video. I remember once upon a time in America going for that, but I still wouldn't part with that stuff. So I don't really see it as an investment, you know.
0: Yeah, I know, but it's not. Like, I I I I see it as kind of you can look at your shelf and say, oh, that's worth yeah. X amount of money, and feel kind of <laughs> a strange, a strange kind of happiness. No, I mean, I'm kind of it's just amusing. Actually, to talk about kind of videos because I remember I had um a really rare copy of The Keep on VHS. And, um, I can't, it was, I can't remember why it was, it was so rare, but when I moved out of my house, um, I saw it at this kind of video trade fair thing and it was going for like 400 pounds. And, um, I rang up my mum and dad and I said, for Christ's sake, don't give away any of my VHS. Just keep them there. I'll come back and sort through them. My mum went, oh no, I took them down the skip the other day and trashed them. <coughs> and i was like oh, oh, oh. i was like god And he, i said there was a and i he has there's some left and i was like when i got home i was like looking for the keep and i said did, did you be when he goes i don't know i just i just threw the lot and i was like you utter <laughs> utter utter idiot i could have sold it like there and then you know what i mean so i like yeah learn my lesson don't ever leave um any stuff with my dad because he will throw it away he doesn't not he has absolutely no idea but no um moving on anyway what else have we got coming out
2: Okay, so for November, we have a new Murnau film joining the Massive Cinema. It is uh, Nosferatu. Um, we already knew about this one, but now we know the release date as well. Um, so it will include um, a host of uh, supplements, including a David Callet commentary and a video piece from Abel Ferrara. Um, it was changed uh, to a dual-format release uh, recently, and uh, I don't know if it is available as a steel steelbook um, also. I think it is actually, if memory serves. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And let me just check, because I know I've pre ordered it. Let me have a. Um, and I remember the, the box is actually, it's got a um, beautiful bit of artwork on it. Hang on.
2: Um, I recently listened yeah. to David Callett's commentary on uh, City Girl, the other Murnau film, and I'm really looking forward to listening to his commentary on Nosferatu.
0: Yeah, it is a still book edition. I've pre ordered it here, and um, yeah, beautiful bit of artwork on the front. I mean, um, Sam, I'm assuming you're kind of quite familiar with Nosferatu. Uh,
1: yeah, I am. I, I love nosferatu i think it's a a beautiful and incredibly interesting film um and as a big horror fan you know it's a real cornerstone of of the genre for me so i can't wait to get hold of this because um it's been difficult for a while uh to get hold of a a decent copy of nosferatu because you know there are so many releases out out there because it's out of copyright
0: yeah you have to be i mean that's the so it's an, another topic really but um, when films kind of go out of print and i mean you see them sometimes like um, in uh, sorry when i go public domain and you see them in sort of dvd um shops and things like that and i remember picking up like the wages of fear on blu-ray for like two pounds and it was one of these kind of you know kind of no no name kind of releases and it was the worst print I've ever seen in my entire life and there's so many editions and copies out there available kind of sifting through the decent ones can be quite a job but I've got a feeling this one yeah hopefully this will be kind of like the definitive one I think for quite some time because uh, I'm really looking forward to Nosferatu it's one of those films that I can sort of I I, I can sit there and watch it I can also kind of like I'll be working or something I just put it on and have it on in the background I could I just could watch it every day I think it's just such a masterpiece and um, yeah I'm really looking forward to that the steel box as well as i said is really really nice as well so definitely uh, pick those up um what else have we got coming, coming
2: the other november release will be a new um partnership between uh, masters of cinema and martin scorsese's uh, world cinema foundation so they will be releasing a uh, volume one box set um, a dual format box, which will be released on the twenty fifth of November. Uh, it will include um, the three films: Dry Summer, a Turkish film; Trances, uh, a Moroccan film, and Revenge, a Kazakhstanian film. Uh, and they will be announcing uh, volume two uh, titles um, in the months ahead. So this will be an ongoing, ongoing series. Yeah, I'm. I have no. I, I've never heard of any of these films.
0: So. No, me neither. I, and um, I was kind of quite surprised when I saw this kind of like come up, crop up on Amazon. And I had a look at it, and um, yeah, I'm really glad actually they kind of made this partnership. Um, it's, it's as we've kind of said before, really. Um, I think when you kind of you buy kind of label. Um, releases from us cinema and you do sort of feel like it's part of kind of film preservation in a way you know the money that you we kind of spend on them they kind of put back into kind of releasing these wonderful films and to make this kind of partnership i i, I hopefully kind of an extension of that i mean like i said i've never heard of, i pre-ordered it anyway just out of the fact that that's what I do with these releases, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope it's kind of a series that um, goes on and on. I, I, I it, you, know, hopefully it will do well and sell you know, a few copies, and they'll kind of carry on doing these. I mean, Sam, have you heard of any of these films at all? Not a clue. Um, yeah, no. I, I, I think my friend Mike, who does
1: my show with me um, most of the time, um, I think he knows some of these films and, and is a big fan of them. They seem very much like the sort of titles that uh, second run might also have released. So, um, I'm I'm interested, but I, I really know nothing about them to, to talk about in, in
0: this case. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, Joachim, I mean, I, I mean is it, have you pre-ordered this
2: as well? I've only pre-ordered from uh, Eureka, and it hasn't been made available yet, uh, but I will pre-order them. Um, it is worth mentioning that um, they will be releasing two boxes a year. Uh, with at least three films, and each of them will have video introduction by Martin Scorsese himself, and eighty-page books, so you'll be getting quite a package.
0: Yeah, and Martin Scorsese, I think that that you know he's one of those kind of people. If, if Martin Scorsese says a film's decent and worth watching, I think he's probably someone <laughs> whose opinion we can kind of, um, yeah, 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 listen to. I mean, I've pre-ordered it's twenty-eight pounds, I think the 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 pre-order I've got on Amazon here. So, hmm. yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Okay, so anything else that we've got going?
2: on? Um, MOC, they tweeted out that we should look out for the uh, actress Dakota goldhaw on forthcoming MOC titles, and I have no idea who this is, but I've seen uh, a film called Thumbsucker, which she was in, but none of the other titles that I found on IMDb made any impact on me, so I I don't know what they're going to release on this one. Yeah, I've, I've never I've never heard of this woman in my life, Sam.
1: Uh, No, and... I've i seen Thumbsucker, if it's the same film that we're...
2: Yeah, I think so, yeah. But, no,
1: no idea. I, I've i never heard the name before. The, the only Dakota that I've heard talk about recently, to be honest, is Dakota Johnson, because she's going to be in Fifty Shades. But, um, no, no idea, so I'm intrigued.
0: Yeah, um, it's a bit of a, a lot of tea, so I will uh, obviously look out for it. But um, yeah, I can't, I can't say it kind of it resonates with me at all at the moment. Uh, but hopefully, kind of uh, the relevance of that will be revealed in the coming months. So, uh, is that kind of, are we done now? Really, for kind of uh, what's going? Yeah, what's on? It' okie okay, okay, okay. Um, Sam, I guess we kind of we kind of use this kind of um, segue to talk, kind of talk about our guests and kind of what they do. So, Sam, just tell kind us of a little bit about yourself, um, kind of your podcast and your, and your site, and you know, kind of uh, your kind of general kind of thoughts on film.
1: Well, I've been running. 24 frames per second um, at 24fps.org.uk. Get a plug in there. Um, <laughs> plug for <away>. about
0: <laughs> For about
1: five years now. Um, basically, it's uh, a film review and occasional features site. I do the odd interview on there, but largely it's based around reviews and, um, you know, around a very personal response to movies, which. I, I guess, is, is what I've always done. Um, we also do a podcast called The Picture Show, um, which has been running for a couple of years, myself and my friend Mike, um, where we essentially yell at each other about how wrong the other is about movies. Um, it's, yes. it's a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, I, I try and have a, a very personal response to, to everything that I do um, in, in terms of reviewing and taken uh, something in a re- irreverent tack. Um, I'm also very interested in genre cinema, horror, exploitation. Um, and to that end, I'm going to be film editor at a horror site that is opening on Halloween uh, called Afraid of the Dark. Uh, we don't have everything set up for that, so I'll give you the address when it comes around. Um, but I'm going to be doing much more horror and exploitation coverage there. So, I mean... I guess that's where I'm coming from, which is an interesting place to come from for this show because you guys, through talking about muscle cinema, tend to talk about stuff that's a bit more highbrow than I'm quite often uh, found talking about. You know, uh, you can often find me down in the gutter talking about um, some nasty little uh, video nasty or something like that. So, this is a, an interesting change for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess I mean when you kind of you talk about kind of mass cinema, yeah, they are kind of a label that kind of tend to kind of stick to what I suppose would be kind of classified as being more highbrow. I certainly don't. I mean, I know kind of the films I watch. I watch kind of everything really, and I don't kind of have a kind of a you know a preference for one kind of type of cinema or next. But I mean, kind of like Joachim, I mean that that's something, isn't it? I think a lot of podcasts, certainly ones which. I enjoy most tend to be ones which kind of go through kind of a wider scope of cinema i mean there's got the standard review show that just do kind of you know the week-to-week films that are coming out in the multiplex and i tend to i'm not really kind of i don't tend to gravitate towards those so much
2: i would agree um i like listening to more obscure type of uh podcasts where you don't go through the go through the week by week uh film reviews and going through the motions so to speak and that's one of the reasons uh, I wanted Sam to be on the show is I think that a diverse opinion is uh, essential for a good show so and I I really don't consider myself a highbrow sort of uh, podcaster it's just that as you said Tom the type of films that MOC releases they might be considered but um, the films I watch on a day-to-day basis they are really varied so yeah
1: also, let me say I don't consider that a bad thing, and I like art cinema. I like, you know, mm. surrealism. I like all of that stuff, and and I I like the film very much that we're going to be talking about today, and and a lot of the other stuff that Mustard Cinema have released. So you know, I'm I'm very okay with all of that. Um, I think you know, on on the picture show we do do the week to week stuff uh, a lot of the time, but we also do lists and we talk about you know, kind of offbeat films and offbeat performances and topics and things like that, that um, otherwise I think don't get enough attention. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing in criticism is bringing attention and bringing um, more serious critical thought sometimes to films and uh, movements that don't usually get that kind of consideration.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm quite surprised. I mean, I, I, I might have spoken about it before, definitely on my other po- po- podcast. But I mean, I had an email once from a listener who told me they were unsubscribing on the basis that I only spoke about films they'd never heard of. And I was gobsmacked. And I, I, I honestly didn't know how to respond. And I sort of sat there and I, and I thought, well, really, that's the biggest compliment I think I was ever paid because I just thought to myself, good. <laughs> you know, I'm got that I'm kind of, you because know, when I, you know, you talk about science fiction, film, I think the first ever episode I did was on um, Colossus, the four bin project, which I don't know if you've ever seen Sam. I oh, yeah. um, You need to see it. It, is, it. It's a brilliant film. It's like a, you know, a, a supercomputer that takes over the world type thing. And um, yeah, this guy was like, you know, why are you talking about these obscure films? I was like, well, you know, who, I, I could do another show on Terminator and, you know, whatnot. And something that's been done a thousand times before. But, you know, I'd rather kind of like dig out these kind of you know films, perhaps that people aren't so familiar with. But I mean, I find one of the other things that really, really gets on my nerves is the kind of snobby attitude people have sometimes to genre cinema. And I remember, I think it was on Film Spotting once and they were talking about kind of, horror films as not being kind of like, you can't look at them as, as, as proper films in a kind of, you know, you can't talk about them in the kind of context of them being kind of films on a par with, just, you know, kind of more highbrow stuff. And I thought, God, it, it really angered me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that has always made me really cross. I mean, one of the things that I often hold up, and it's odd to be talking about this on this show, is uh, a film like Cannibal Holocaust, which I think is a really brilliantly made and constructed film. But because it is that film, doesn't get the consideration
0: a lot of the time. I mean, you know, if you look at someone like Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a guy who seems to be worshipped. Just made really kind of you know genre thrillers all the time, and yet somehow you know, you know, Sight and Sound last year you know declared well the kind of the critics and people they polled declared uh, Vertigo to be the greatest film ever made. And um, I think you know I went back and watched it, and I thought this film's actually a little bit stupid, actually. I mean, it's, you know, it's well-made, obviously, but, I mean, it's a completely daft story. And yet, you know, something like The Evil Dead is kind of sniffed at as being this kind of, you know, schlocky horror film with, um, you know, kind of you know, gore and violence in it. And it's sort of... Sort of sectioned off in its own little category and I, I i when i look at films i always try and sort of think about them as, as all being you know, do they succeed in what they intend on doing are they well constructed and when you kind of think about films like that it doesn't matter what genre they are or you know, is it highbrow lowbrow i think it all kind of makes it slightly more inclusive and um yeah i, I do get kind of a bit of a bee in my bonnet actually about that it's, it's something which I've, i kind of feel very passionately about
1: yeah, me too. On on the Hitchcock subject, I mean, I like Vertigo very, very much. I think it's a terrific film, but it's not even my favourite Hitchcock film, let alone my favourite yeah. film. So, you know. yeah, uh,
0: it's um. In fact, I just kind of um, uh, a slight plug-in because if you go on savvy.com's dot com's website, you can buy the Alfred Hitchcock Blu-ray box set. And um, it's go- it's going for fifty pounds at the moment, but there's like fourteen films in it. it was, it's it's already been released on um, DVD a few years ago, but it's got things like kind of like a Shadow of a Doubt and all that kind of thing in it. And fifty pounds for like I think it's like fourteen films or something. It's an absolute bargain. And uh, if only I ca- weren't
1: saving for LFF at the moment. Uh, what what's that?
0: What's what's LFF? The London Film Fest. Oh right, oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Um, but yeah, if you've got a spare fifty pounds, um, yeah, get it because uh, it is um. A pretty mas, a pretty brilliant collection, and it's got um, my favourite film of any Hitchcock film, which is Shadow of a Doubt in it, and Mine it looks fantastic. Too. Yeah, I absolutely adore that film. And have you have you seen Stoker yet? Uh, Stoker is a masterpiece. It's my favourite film of the year by a long shot. Yeah, um, because I, I was um, as soon as I started hearing things about Stoker, they mentioned um, Shadow of a Doubt, and it's a kind of not so much a companion film, but it's kind of heavily, I think, very heavily influenced. Well, i mean shadow the whole of the Uncle
1: Depp. charlie thing yes gives gives the game away immediately on that one yes
0: but um no i, I absolutely love that film. have you seen Stokey yet here can
2: yeah i have i i really enjoyed it um not as much as you two uh i think but uh, i haven't seen shadow of a dap yet so
0: yeah you need to um yeah absolutely brilliant film but um okay so um should we kind of move on to the to summarize
2: uh, i was wondering um sam how did you get involved with Masters of cinema and reviewing them and, uh, yeah when i was younger
1: obviously i was always interested in older movies but i never really got around to discovering um older films and more sort of uh artsy films that of the kind that Masters of cinema release um until relatively recently when i decided to you know, make a point of um, experiencing some of those movies. And um, Masters Cinema were just sort of coming on the scene at that time. Uh, they were just starting to put out DVD releases. Um, and so I started picking up a few things. Uh, the film that we're going to be talking about, Sunrise, um, M, and Metropolis, and some, some uh, releases like that, uh, off my own back. And then at the same time I was also writing um, for my site but also writing for some other sites, notably for um, Cinemart, uh, which is no longer operating, but I did quite a lot of writing for them and for some reason, I'm not even sure why, um, my editor decided that I should be given quite a lot of the Masters of Cinema titles and uh, through that I discovered a lot of Japanese directors actually that I really enjoyed um and um, you know really felt that I broadened uh, my horizons uh, and yeah i I think that's something that must is great about the Mas- cinema for me is they've sort of forced me and enable me to broaden my cinematic horizons with with every release really um i I really enjoy that about them and it's yeah, it's good for me as a cinephile, <laughs> I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, do you kind of pick up any of the kind of Criterion releases as well? Because,
1: uh, no, because I don't have a multi-region Blu-ray player, um, no, no. and I'm really, really annoyed about that because they just released Badlands, which is my favourite film of all
0: time. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, it's one of those things. I mean, when I started collecting kind of Criterion Master Cinemas, I, I, I completely I kind of agree with you. Saying It's you'd you'd buy a title, um, and then it, you from that you would kind of you could kind of go off on tangents and start looking at other directors and other films, and yeah, you know, you, you're kind of I, I suppose my kind of diet of films increased dramatically. Really, I, I was quite similar. To you really. I just tended to my favorite period in America, in cinema was kind of the American films of the seventies, and um, yeah, I kind of dipped in and out of kind of other kind of film. Um, cultures from around the world but it was kind of getting into those releases like you said that I, I think really kind of made me kind of really appreciate film a lot more and kind of dig out a lot more of these titles okay so on today's episode we're going to talk about um, F.W. Murnau's 1927 film Sunrise which is actually spy number one uh, on the Master's Cinema and Sam I thought kind of because um, you uh, picked this title to come and talk about and uh, I suppose it'd be kind of a good jumping in point to kind of talk about what, what, what was it in particular that made you want to kind of come on here and talk about Sunrise with us? sunrise was one of the first silent films that i
1: ever saw actually and it was because i had heard a lot about uh, a lot about it um about how it won that unique academy award at the first oscars um for unique and artistic picture which was never given again um and you know i'd heard that it was this great classic of late silent cinema so when i decided to try and discover Older films. Uh, it was one of the releases that I picked up. Um, actually, the initial Eureka uh, release from uh, way back, and um, I had recently picked up the Blu-ray. And as much as anything, it was an excuse to watch it and discuss a film that I'm uh, I, I find incredibly interesting from a historical perspective. You know, in terms of the development of cinema and that I just think is is a brilliant film still to sit down and watch. Yeah, you know, it's a really enveloping experience.
0: Yeah, I mean Joachim, okay. Kim, what were your kind of like first impressions of Sunrise?
2: I think it's one of the first Blu-rays I bought from Master Cinema and I remember being immediately grabbed by just the Audacious directing from uh, now and just this mo- this explosive uh, sort of energy that comes through it the first forty minutes or something, and it's I-, I only recently learned about the historical background and how what a, uh, what a standard it has in the uh, film history and just uh, the um the dual Oscars, for example, with Wings winning the best pitch and this winning the most unique production or something. and I, I, It's just a film that keeps on surprising me each time I watch it with just, not only in terms of how it's made, but also the to- the types of stories that go with it and uh, like I discover more about film history and more about Murnau himself and yeah it's just uh, an incredibly interesting film even though I do have some problems with the uh, plot of it but the um, the way that it is told is uh, just extraordinary. Yeah I mean we'll get on to kind of the, the, the
0: ins and outs of it but I mean my, my experience of this I mean I actually owned um, Sunrise on I think I owed... I bought the original Master Cinema DVD, never watched it, and then I think they re-released it actually um, with more features. Bought that, never watched it, and then I actually saw it um, on Blu-ray for the first. That was my first kind of time I ever kind of sat down and properly watched it. And uh, this film literally changed the way I thought about cinema. And that's I, I, you know, that's I don't say that sort of um, bombastly. It it completely blew me away. And at the time, I was kind of prepping to make uh, a short film and people have kind of said to me, you know, what's the kind of, the, you know, what was the main influence of that? And it, Sunrise was one of the, you know, when I was kind of planning my shots and thinking about how I was going to make the film, Sunrise was the film I kept going back to time and time again, because it's, I, I think, a masterclass in how you tell a story just through visuals. And it, but the, I was used to seeing a lot of silent films, very much kind of static camera setups. And yeah, for want of a better word, I, I think that, um, I've often heard kind of... um early cinema re- referred to something something like basic cinema or something like that and it was a kind of a horrible way of describing it and it, when i watched this I, I just i was sort of gobsmacked really at the kind of the level of technical prowess that kind of Murnau brought to it and how he takes this kind of incredibly simple story and really makes something which i would never seen before and I, you know, it's a film it's a type of filmmaking that w- simply doesn't exist anymore kind of in the kind of the cgi world and i think for people who kind of appreciate how films are made this is something where you you can just dive so much into the kind of the technicalities of it and like we talk about a lot more but i mean it's i mean essentially it's a, a very simple tale of a guy who um in an unnamed village with, along with his kind of wife i think they're farmers aren't they i think is the the they and he is uh corrupted by a woman from the city who tries to convince him to kill his doting wife and uh sell the farm move to the city with her and kind of wrapped with guilt he um he thinks about doing it and then decides not to and him and his wife end up in an unnamed city and run around it basically um rekindling their love affair and that is kind of the story but it's is it's the thing. I think it's the execution that has people coming back to um, summarize so many times I mean what over mean what your kind of like thoughts on kind of expression German expressionism cinema anyway in the first place
1: it's something that I know less about than I probably should but I I, I love all of the examples I've seen of it um, the stylization of this film is more subtle in a way than it is with metropolis or um you know some of the more out there expressionist films particularly something like caligari um but it's used so beautifully to make the world just a little off you know the interiors of the houses are all slanted and exaggerated in, in really interesting ways uh in in some ways that make the frame uh, composed in a in a way that's slightly strange, um, but without you know going totally outside the realms of reality, um, I I really appreciate that about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, expressionism is something that I probably understand more when it develops into noir, which I I have uh, a bit more of a, an experience of and a and a knowledge about. But that. Indeed, is I, I'm sure we'll come onto this. Is something that I think is uh, very present in Sunrise. There are definitely characteristics about it, particularly in uh, in terms of the women and women from the city, that are very noirish, very proto-noir.
0: Mm. Yeah, okay. I mean, what, what, I'm not sure, kind of like, kind of, you know, have you kind of seen many kind of German expressionist films before, kind of um, earlier works and I mean we talked about Nosferatu earlier, of course.
2: I've seen a bit, I haven't really delved into German Expressionism per se, but I've seen, I've been exposed to like film history as it has developed and German Expressionism is definitely one of the areas that are the most interesting to me just in terms of the visual style and how they portray characters and how they use visuals in such an imaginative way. And I really like the fact that they rely less on titles than other types uh, of cinema in the silent era are used to. Um, they are more reliant on the fact that shadows and camera work and just how how the sets are constructed, it all sort of comments on what is happening on screen and what is happening inside the characters. it It feels like a more cohesive type of filmmaking to me, and Sunrise is definitely... I think that Murnau he uses all of his ability and all of his um, uh, his experience to make Sunrise the movie that it is. It's it's a film that you can you can see direct link between Hollywood and Germany when uh, there were so many German directors being brought over to Hollywood to um, make Hollywood what it is today. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting story with
0: um summarized because uh, William Fox um, brought Murnau over and it, he he wanted him just to basically do what he was doing. He didn't kind Mm -hmm. of try and, um, you know, kind of water him down. And I guess the kind of the example, we've seen it so many times in modern Hollywood when directors come over um, from abroad. You know, John Woo is the classic example. And they kind of, they see these films that he makes in Hong Kong and then they try and they bring him over to America. They don't let him make Hong Kong cinema in America. They try and make him make American films. And the results are fairly terrible. Mm. Um, it has to be said, and I think what what works so well about Sunrise just from the off, really, is the fact that you know Fox ha- William Fox just had complete faith in him, and I mean this was the most expensive um, silent film Fox had ever produced. And, you know, it's it's kind of incredible to me that they just said, right, you know, go and do your thing. And obviously he brings all these kind of like canted angles. And, you know, it's just little things really like, um, you know, at the, the beginning of the film where we see kind of the woman from the city in um, one of the, the little houses. And it's like the table in the foreground with the old man and the son sitting at it is is at an angle. And she's actually walking down into the shot. And it's just little things like that, which are so subtle, yet give this film such a unique look. And it's one of the reasons why you can go back to it so much, I find, because every time I look at it, I, I find something else in it that I haven't seen before. And, you know, I'm related to a film I went, I went to go and watch uh, last week, um, the new Elysium, the Neil, Neil Bomb camp film. And about halfway through, I just thought, oh, God, I'm so bored of this film already. Mm. I've, I've seen this a hundred times before, and it has kind of like no. I walked out to thinking, that's a film that I have no intention of going back to anytime soon. I might watch it when it comes on cable or something like that. But I had no kind of like, kind of desire to go back to it. A film like Sunrise, I'm just I'm, I was kind of gushing over the kind of technicalities of it, but it, it's just, you can just go back and try and kind of piece together, almost like a kind of a detective in a way, how this shot was done. And you can try and, try and work them out in your head. And that's one of the things I love about it so much. And f- for a silent film, I think it has yeah a lot of people put off perhaps by watching silent films i mean certainly i'm I'm not but I haven't seen as many as perhaps I should have done but um it, it's hugely entertaining as well i think um in many respects it has that kind of replayability which uh you, you, you don't expect from a film like this perhaps i mean i mean yeah, sam i mean is it something i mean how is it something you find yourself going back to quite a lot
1: no, but that's only because I don't go back to many films a lot i've got four thousand sitting here I don't really have time yeah. Um, yeah. but talking about um, Sunrise in terms of its budget and being the most expensive uh, film that have put together to that point I, I think that's really interesting because it seems that there is uh, a freedom that that uh, budget allowed Murnau because there is such a sense of that the camera can do pretty much anything in Sunrise um, there's really very little uh, restraint in it from, from that point of view, uh, in that, you know, it's, it's got this camera that moves a lot, uh, it's got really quite elaborate uh, double exposures and special effects that um, are obviously of their time, but are incredibly advanced for their day. And there's a sense that Murnau is able to sort of free himself and bring out all the ideas that he that he's had um, and realise them in a way that you know maybe he I I mean I I think the films I've seen of his from Germany are incredible as well but there seems to be a freedom that comes with the uh, the increased budget here um, and allows him to really realise something that. Uh, he maybe hadn't been able to before. In terms of the visual ideas, one of the things that I, I think is, is really interesting is um, the camera movement absolutely, which is very free, there's crane shots, there's tracking shots, there's, there's uh very free camera, but actually I think the character movement is often very interesting as well. Um, particularly in, in the first passage of the film uh, concerning George O'Brien, who plays the man. and um, I understand that, actually, his boots were weighted so that Mm. he would move very methodically, very slowly. Actually, what it reminds me of, though, obviously it predates it, is uh, Karloff's monster in Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, And there's this very sort of, as if he's weighed down by what he's considering doing to his wife. Um, And there's there's other things like that in the film, but I, I really think that's something that, is quite key to the film and, and is really well realised and, and quite subtly realised as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, because if if you if you were going to do that today, you'd have um you know lines of of dialogue of the character God going you know say oh I'm so you know I'm so conflicted by what I'm asking to do yada yada yada. But you know obviously Murnau doesn't have that luxury, so in order to kind of communicate that, he sticks weights in someone's boots and makes them walk, and it, it's brilliant. You know, it's it it's so it's so create such a creative way of conveying you know basic kind of thoughts and kind of motivations of the characters and um i mean you know, just, just going on that on the, the kind of you know, the, the fact that this film has tracking shots in it they're incredibly complex and beautifully um executed as well uh, especially in those kind of opening moments and the way they kind of the camera kind of glides around the um the set and you know kind of the, the blocking of the characters as well and it's again it's one of those it's one of those things sometimes when when i'm watching a film like this often i get a bit too um i lose myself in kind of things like that and mm. sometimes sort of i'm I'm too obsessed with kind of looking at them trying to kind of you know marveling at the kind of the technical of it where i get a little bit lost in the story but again going back to that kind of idea that this film kind of rewards repeat viewings you know, the more the, the subtleties
2: of it are, are kind of
0: there and the the more you go back and see it the more they kind of come alive. I mean, Joachim, you know, what are your kind of kind of thoughts on the, the technical aspects of some of this?
2: It's absolutely brilliant. I don't think I can say anything mean about it uh, for the first 35 minutes or 40 minutes. It's just one sort of, not trick, I would say, but just one technique after another where he's, he's using camera movements to go from a third perspective to a first perspective to... Carrying over to a two-shot of the people, just when they when um, O'Brien is walking through the reeds, it's uh, so many things that you can pick up on, as you said, when you're watching it again and again. That just when it when you have the tracking shot through the mud, there's no there's no tracks on the floor because they're actually in the ceiling and the camera is hanging down from the ceiling, and just stuff like that that you you sit there and wonder the first time, how did they actually get such a smooth movement in 1927? And how these were the days of actually crank camera, but he had some sort of mechanic, mechanical sort of uh, automator that uh, cranked the camera for him when he was uh, filming this. And just many of these things that keep contributing to my appreciation of just the technical achievement that is Sunrise.
1: I understand that. Yeah, I mean, so much...
0: So now you go, you go, you guys uh,
1: Just to contextualise that, I, I understand that Carl Struess actually, uh, who was one of the two DPs, mm. um, invented a an an electric motor or adapted an electric motor to run the camera for him when he couldn't uh, crank it, and that may have been pretty much the beginning of, of automated cameras as we know them or knew them pre digital. Uh, mm. So, you know, it's a very important film in that respect in the development of film technology.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, it, as a director, I mean, you know, Murnau must have kind of t- tipped up, you know, to be kind of given all that kind of creative freedom. And what I what I think is so impressive is I don't think this, it, it's an indulgent film. I, I think everything he does... Um, is it, it, it's not just there to show off mm-hmm. i think everything he does it, it contributes to the kind of the story it's not just sort of you know oh look at me i've got a big budget you know let's see you know, let's see if we can do a tracking shot with a rail in the ceiling you know it's it's all very it's so methodical and well but in a way i mean i, 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 I think about it in my notes and kind of going back to it, it was, it's almost kind of like the kind of same thing james cameron had, did with avatar you know which was to have this sort of huge budget and actually have to kind of invent technology to realize his dream and obviously kind of two completely different films of course, but I think it's kind of Murnau's kind of in that kind of bracket of filmmaker who have actively changed and, you know, kind of evolved how films were made. And from that perspective, it's one of the reasons like, you you can't, you can't just have, you know, t- total admiration for it. And just go back to you, Sam, I mean, the film actually had two cinematographers, as you were saying, Carl um, Strauss and Charles Rocha and, <laughs> I, I'd be interesting to. I, I know I was listening to other commentaries and um, on on the disc, and it was from a director of photography whose name I can't remember. But I, I'm not entirely sure who did what. Um, but I, it doesn't feel like a film that has two cinematographers. My
1: understanding from what John Bailey says on the commentary is that Rocher was kind of credited first because he was the more established uh, cinematographer. Um, but that Struess was somebody who Murnau frequently worked with and who, because Rocher apparently became ill, um, probably did the the great bulk of the work on the picture. Um, I want to come back and pick something up from what you said last, though, which is uh, about how the uh, technicals of the film really uh, contribute more than just sort of look at me, look what I can do. Um, I, I think that's really beautifully shown by some of the uh, special effects in the film, again, particularly in the first part, um, where you get several double exposures um, during the time when the husband is thinking about killing his wife, because the woman in the city has asked him to. Um, and the woman from the city, not the woman in the city. Uh, And you get these shots of uh, her sort of fading into the shot and caressing him. And it's about, I think, how deep this uh, attraction runs in him, because you literally see her sort of almost inside of him, inside of his head. Um, I think that adds, you know, it's quite literal, but it adds so much meaning and... Communicates so much that now would probably be done in a, a much less artistically interesting voiceover.
0: yeah and i mean you talk, talk about kind of the, the you know double exposure i mean i think actually in, in, in over the course of them there's actually examples of triple exposures and i mean that is literally rewinding the film and shooting again so any sort of mistake that you have you have to kind of begin the whole process again and it's like you said saying i don't think he's doing he's not doing it because you know he can't he's, he's doing it because it genuinely adds something to the story and i mean i've got the film on in the background at the moment and they're, they're kind of in the reeds and the woman from the city is kind of trying to convince him to come and suddenly in the kind of um you suddenly see kind of images of the city and kind of people partying and things like that and like you say it's this it's this brilliant idea that you know she's sort of projecting this sort of life literally onto the screen for us to see and uh it, yeah it's magical those moments and um i think when you sort of like say when you think about films now that's one of the reasons why i, I recommend this one so much to people who have an interest in you know, making their own films is that it, it shows you when you kind of you take out dialogue it shows you how you can convey messages just visually without any kind of without just a simple look or, you know, uh, perhaps a cut to something else. You don't need to kind of people to have them physically say things. Because the other thing about the film, there, there's not many titles in it at all, really, are there? No. And I again, I wanted to pick something up there, because there's a really
1: interesting combination of dialogue and, well, you know, inverted commas, dialogue and visuals, again, early in the film, when the woman from the city says... Uh, of the man's wife, what if she were drowned? And on that title card, the word "drowned" begins to sink, and yeah, it's it's brilliant. And then the cut to the man imagining uh, pushing his wife into into the uh, lake that they have to cross in order to get to the city. Um, and again, it it's a way of sort of suggesting the emphasis but usually the title cards i find in silent films are just very blankly expository you know or or dialogue um but this one conveys meaning conveys the idea of what it's saying as well and though there's very little um use of titles in in the film that's just brilliant title use and again really adds something uh to the film in a very a uh, small but very clever way.
2: I think I remember reading that purists they found that this type of title cards it wasn't. It wasn't as proper, or it wasn't uh, as good as the uh, traditional title cards. They felt that this was a sort of uh, a lesser version of uh, the regular title cards or something. Uh, I can't really remember. Um, the um exact phrasing of it but um there was some dispute over how well this was received it's what happens though when someone kind of shakes up the norm isn't it Mm. there's
0: there's always that kind of hostility you know just because something's been done time and time again someone does something different um you know people kind of get a bit sort of snobby about it i mean i think it's a really just a kind of really playful way of emphasizing you know the subtleties of the story um it doesn't it's it's not distracting is it and you know probably it was probably animated i i, I would imagine it it, it was go you know, quite hard to actually do that kind of drowning effect you know i would imagine quite a lot of time effort went into it it's like um you know the, the opening of um the film seven for example you know with those kind of books that have been written I mean, that, that that cost just to kind of make all those little novels like two hundred thousand hmm. dollars And, you know, a lot of people are like, what a waste of money. But, I mean, you're you're telling me there's ever been a more kind of striking beginning of a film? I I don't know. It it certainly works in setting the tone of the film. And, you know, I think Murnau just, you know, having these titles do that, it's, yeah, it just shows someone who's thinking outside the box, you know, trying to do something new with film.
2: Do you think that this film could work as a sound film? Because as you said, there's so much visual um storytelling there's little title cast there's no there's no really much dialogue
0: and um, well, and it's it, very
2: it's very broad isn't it yeah i mean this film was one of the first ones that used um
0: a sound it actually had a a kind of a soundtrack that had kind of effects to it mm. um I think if it was a dialogue film, I I don't think it... I I think it would be a a bit turgid, to be honest with you, because it would just be... I mean, the acting's very, very um, deliberate, isn't it? You know, kind of very overly dramatic. Um, And I think if it was a sound film, we'd lose a lot of the kind of, you know, the the weights in the boots because you just wouldn't have the... A few lines of dialogue would easily say that. I mean, Sam, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think if
1: it were a sound film it would likely have tended much more to the melodrama that is, you know, inherent in the story, but I think it's muted by the lack of uh, of dialogue and the need to express everything uh, pretty much purely through images. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, there are great sound melodramas, don't get me wrong, but I struggle to see this one as as a sound film, I've got to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it was made on the cusp of, you know, kind of sound being introduced to films. And to me, I think it represents the, the really the pinnacle of silent filmmaking. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I mean, I just don't see how, you know, you, you could, I don't, I don't really see how, 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 where it could go from here on. It, to me, it's, it's, it's just absolutely, you know, these are people who have mastered the craft of silent filmmaking. Obviously, with a bit of budget, they've been able to kind of you know, express what they do a, a lot
2: more. Um, I think I read that Jonathan Rosenbaum and I totally agree with him that it's sort of a shame that sound came when it did because this was the time where we got movies like Passion of Joan of Arc and The Man with the Movie Camera and Man- Murnau Sunrise. And it was just, as you said, the pinnacle of silent cinema where people have, they have achieved this sort of uh, heightened uh, visual expressiveness that you can tell. Universal language through visuals, and it's just uh, so many great movies that are coming out uh, at the end of the 20s.
1: Some people have said that it's a shame that sound really came along at all uh, to a certain degree because the silence was actually the thing that really universalized cinema uh, to mm. begin with. You know, once you put soundtracks and dialogue on, then you have something that is purely local. To a certain degree, at least until you put either subtitles or dubbing on it, or as Universal did in the early years, um, you know, shoot another version in a in a different language, Spanish or German, usually. So, you know, it it kind of strips cinema of its universality somewhat, uh, and that is a pity, particularly when it was at this sort of artistic high.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I mean, although we talk about. Um this as being an American film. I think it's kind of worth watching. I mean, you know, the characters don't have any names. Um, they are just literally the man, the woman, the woman from the city. But you can't tell that this film was made in America. And that was a very, very deliberate choice by Murnau. Um hmm. that the, there's nothing to identify um either the village or the city as being anywhere in the world just as they are literally just in the world. They, they you don't he doesn't you know, we don't know Anywhere you know, where these look like, I mean, because even when they kind of they get to the city, it, it looks like a city. It doesn't look like a city that is familiar to to me at all. It just looks like you know the buildings. I, I suppose kind of wide streets. You know, might be kind of like considered American, but you know, the interiors as well were all very glass, which, as I understand, wasn't something which was you know a part of American architecture at the time. And that, that's one of the reasons why I like it. I mean, I was involved in a quite heated di- uh, Facebook debate the other day when I was talking about films where especially superhero films that just take place in america and they kind of boil down to basically a group of zero superheroes in the american army um saving the planet and i'm I'm very bored of that it just you know it just makes they, they take place in very small worlds i find these films i've always
1: wondered why um you know aliens land in america in every movie you know why can't they land in you know russia
0: Something. Well, I think it has something. To do, I think it's as I was um quite uh, sternly rebuked. Um, I think it has something to do with the fact that these films are made in uh, are made with American money. But it, it, it still doesn't. It still doesn't kind of get over the fact that it, it's dull. I've just seen it time and time and time again. And when you watch Sunrise, yeah, it, it's you, you can't say it's a German film. You can't say it's an American film. You can't say it's an English film. It's just a film that takes place in this world. And um, I suppose by virtue of the fact that all the characters in it are kind of white Caucasian um, we can say it probably you know, takes place in either Europe or somewhere you know Europe or America but you know it, it's it, it's one of its endearing um, qualities because the kind of the stuff in the, the village as well it's kind of almost the, the timing of it seems quite strange as well I mean it's were it just set in this village I would have no idea that kind of like cars had been invented you know, it looks so basic doesn't it that it's so sparse and kind of I, I don't know, it just looks so sort of basic which I think was another kind of very deliberate thing by Murnau.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a film in that respect about contrasts and about people in you know, the city is unfamiliar to them and it, not not scary but something that they're, that they're slightly out of their, their context in and actually I think that's why the film can proceed as it does in a way that's at least somewhat believable, because to to get on to talking about the, the actual shape of the story and some of the reasons that uh, modern audiences might struggle with Sunrise is obviously the man comes very, very close to killing his wife and does actually reveal his intentions. You know, he gets to the point of pushing her off the boat and then can't. And obviously she's... Yeah, uh, extremely upset, extremely traumatized by this, but the, the through their time in the city, they sort of rediscover each other. And um, I, I read a piece this morning that suggested it's it's almost a remarriage uh, that day in the yeah. city. And in a modern context, it's really hard to sort of uh, accept that that happens in a matter of hours from the place that, you know, he's he's trying to kill her at the beginning of the film. But because the city is sort of slight again, slightly removed from reality, that they're sort of in this place that's somewhat dreamlike for them, that's that's so outside of their usual context. I think that makes it easier to accept somehow.
0: Yeah, it's um I'm just kind of <laughs> rewinding slightly, I just want to go back to the bit where, you know, he's thinking about killing her because it's the it, the influence of the city on this play, on this kind of village. Um, I, it's like the kind of the, you, know, you see the, the the woman from from the city. You know, she smokes and she looks kind of vampish and you know quite scary. And it, one of the things i was watching. I mean, I I, I I was almost laughing. I have to be honest with you, but like, like the guy, like how how is it she gets in his head that much? Is the city that corrupting on him? You know what I mean? It's like to kind of do this to. It was to his quite
2: wife. easy for her to influence him. I feel
0: yeah i think you know, how weak is this guy you know it's like
1: well I, 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 there is also the fact that you know a, a, an opening title suggests that she's been there for some yeah. weeks so yeah. you've got yeah. to accept that this isn't the first time they've met things like that so yeah, yeah
2: not only that but i think he's quite miserable with his wife but on the other hand i feel that you were, you were talking about frankenstein earlier and i feel that I was also thinking about Frankenstein, but not in terms of movements, but just in terms of—he feels quite simple-minded. This fella.
0: Yeah, he's—he's he's not the brightest, button, is he? Let's no. be honest. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's. It, I mean, I, you know, I've got—I got it on the moment that bit where he's kind of thinking about killing her in in the boat, and um, it. it yeah, I—I I have to be—I I did kind of snigger a little bit because he kind of gets up and he's standing over her, and it—it's it. It's, it it did remind me a little bit of kind of nosferati because she, she sort of sat there just looking at him kind of complete kind of terror and i'm sort of he has this kind of expression on his face where he's you know he's obviously very very conflicted and he says something to her like um oh you know don't, don't be afraid of me i thinking, <laughs> thinking i think mean, it's no wonder she starts legging it you know what i mean it's sort of
2: but it's interesting it's another type of contrast that he's making between the like primitive male mind and the more complex and nuanced female mind, because the the woman from the city, she's sort of manipulative and she's. Uh, you feel like there's layers to this person, and the and the wife also. She's forgiving and she's caretaking, and she's not this type of uh, character which is thinking only about one thing. But basically, all of the male characters in the film are interested or thinking about sex in some way or another. I I think you
1: have to see it as a film about archetypes as as much Mm. as characters. You know, uh, the woman from the city is sort of this archetypal temptress and Janet Gaynor's character, the wife, is, you know, almost angelic, um, particularly in her forgiveness. But also, I mean, she's got that terrible wig (laughs) the, Jesus, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a big blonde cake on her head um, But again, because of the, the way it is And the particular sort of circular design You can almost see it as a halo of, of sorts You know, she's almost literally angelic Particularly at the e- at the very end of the film
2: Yeah, when her hair's let out That's mm-hmm. when you get the angelic But I, I was thinking more about what John Bailey said With the bathing cap on, yeah
0: yeah i mean it, it was slightly distracting her
2: hair hmm. um it's it's uh
0: it, again it, it's i mean i think it's one of the minor criticisms of the film but i mean she's so she's almost annoyingly kind of twee and nice isn't she in a way it's sort of you can see why perhaps um you know this kind of vamp from the cities come who might be a bit more <laughs> sort of um but more, more experienced and liberated in certain areas and uh yeah, as uh, has kind of
2: warped him in a little bit but um but no, do you, um, but do any of you actually root for them Do you feel, like, any sympathy for him when we've seen him trying to kill his wife? And I think he's actually... I think he cheated on his wife with the woman the night that he met the woman in the reeds. It's, It's strange, but the thing is, the film kind of works that spell on you, I feel. You know,
1: it does sort of... For the first part of the city stuff, you are thinking... Why are you not running away? He literally just <laughs> tried to kill you. And and then you get swept up in it. You know, you get swept up in the romance of these people. Or I do, anyway. Maybe I'm a sap. Um, <laughs> get swept up in the romance of these people sort of rediscovering each other and finding, again, the reasons they were together in the first place, I think. And then, you know, when... Uh, the third act begins to happen. Um, you know, it is genuinely sad because you do see something of the connection that these these two people have. I think, and you know, so yeah, it's amazing. But I think it does get you to not forgive, but probably forget to a certain degree what happens in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think um, it's a it's it's a typical love conquers all story, and um. It's, uh, when I was watching, I mean, again, I I never ever really ever buy the fact that he's actually ever going to do it. I think he's, you know, he's too much of a good man deep down to even consider it. And you know the film is about him kind of rediscovering the joys because I mean there is a kind of a metaphorical wedding in the film, isn't there? They go they go to a church and what wo- actually watch someone getting married and then it's kind of the way it's kind of constructed is you know Myrna has them coming out the church together and there's loads of people waiting out there and it's kind of rediscovering love and yeah yeah you know, it's, it's a love con. so oh, I don't think it's sappy really to sort of say you know you kind of you're rooting for them I I think it's fairly kind of um, it's a film i think where you could kind of go along for the ride and enjoy it on those bases but the i mean one of the issues that i i do have with the film is this massive shift in tone that takes place during it where you have the start where it's this sort of dark kind of noiry type thing and then it becomes this incredibly sort of twee lovey-dovey film
1: mm.
0: and as i'm watching it sometimes i'm sort of like well yeah, I was kind of enjoying the dark stuff, to be honest with you. Yeah, and uh, that that kind of that journey they go through in town. I mean, there, there's one thing I want to talk about in particular, which is the pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is that about, really? <laughs> I mean, a drunk pig. I mean, is you, you know,
2: I mean, do, do you of you sort of watch that and just think, "Come on, you know, that's that's"? For me, it's it's not only the pig, but it's the dancing, and it's the picture taking, and it's the. It's the shaving, and I feel like after the 35, 40-minute mark where they've gotten married, the film technique it sort of settles down and we're supposed to have all these character moments of them falling in love once again. And for me, it... it, I mean, it works to a certain degree, but I, I feel that my interest is definitely less uh, uh, aware at this point. Uh, but... It, at the point where they're taking the boat back uh, home again, I'm uh, more into the film again, yeah, because maybe it's the darkness, maybe it's that he's using more cinematic techniques, maybe it's because I'm not really that invested in these characters, so the mo- the moments in the film where I'm supposed to be caring for them, I'm just sort of waiting for other stuff to happen.
1: I, I think the bookending darker stuff is you know, uh, inarguably more effective, and more complex in its technique, though there are special effects techniques in the uh, midsection that work really nicely, but you can't have those bookending sections without the middle section, you know, it it wouldn't mean anything, so, you know, particularly the the third act, so, you know, is it a bit twee, is it a bit sappy? Yeah, totally, but, you know, Hollywood does twee and sappy quite regularly. Um, yeah. And at least it's doing it really, really well, and uh, mm. you know, cinematically Indeed. interestingly here. You know,
0: yeah. I mean, that goes back to what I say. saying. I mean, it's, it's such a simple story, um, incredibly well told. And um, yeah, like you're saying, you know, throughout the history of Hollywood, um, well, cinema in general, really, we have these kind of stories. But in yeah, the middle section, it, yeah, it. I can still watch it and appreciate it from just the you know the film techniques and you know what it does. I find a lot of. Um, Silent films, out there. there's always a scene where they go to the fair. Yeah. They only seem to kind of crop up. I it's like, I, I've seen it a few times, you thinking, well, you know, I, mean, I suppose it was the form of mass entertainment in those days, but it's like, they, they, they do seem to kind of, yeah, you know, the dancing stuff. Um, yeah, I know what you mean, you Kim, it's quite kind of, it's a bit sort of like, come on, <laughs> let's just get a movie. It's like um, the Deer Hunter,
2: you know, that, that that wedding scene, that they, it's like, come on, just, just, just get to be Hitman, let's it, get this it, over. It, and it is interesting that. The structure of the film, narratively, is quite different from what we're used to from Hollywood. It's not the typical three-act structure, but after about the 40-minute mark, the plot is already done with. And we're sort of left with all these character moments. And then the plot is only, it only returns in the end. So it, it's quite interesting that it, where the plot is convoluted to the front end of the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, you know, that's you know, definitely a, a valid point, but I, I suppose it's, you know, because of the overall enjoyment of, of Sunrise is getting through the, the middle section. It's not to say, you know, I, I'm not bored by it, a sense. I'm, I'm just sort of like, from a filmmaking perspective, I'm sort of sat there thinking, why do I need to be having this scene of a drunk pig? Hmm. I mean, it was that to sort of entertain the Yeah, the audience, would, would a contemporary audience have been kind of rolling in the
2: aisles uh, at a, a
0: pig staggering? I actually thought it was incredibly cruel. And the yeah. old
2: man trying to. <laughs> like take up the uh the hang or the dress of the woman that keeps slipping down or something it's uh, i don't i don't know who that's for either <laughs>
0: well i think i to be honest with you, i think in, you know it's that kind of vaudeville you know yeah i suppose that at, at those times where it's like fart jokes now are apparently funny you yeah. know and, and that kind of thing I, it's, it's, the, it's the version of that i suppose
1: to defend uh one one bit of the middle section a bit um There's a scene just as they're walking out of the church, which I I think is really effective, where obviously you see it all with uh, back projection, um, because there's a lot of things that would be very dangerous, you know, they're sort of walking through traffic because they've just fallen back in love with each other and they're totally absorbed in each other. Um, And the back projection is really primitive, it's, you know, 1927, so it looks as if they're kind of removed from the world. part of me looks at that sequence and goes well they are you know it may be that it's a primitive special effects technique that is having this effect but actually it's a really interesting effect in terms of where they are in the story are you know Hmm. these two people totally removed from the world absorbed in each other um and it's one of those great little accidents i think or well maybe it isn't maybe mona knew exactly what he was doing but it feels like a happy accident
0: yeah, I mean, I just you know, talk about that kind of like the way they are in the city. Um, it, it, it's a strange one because I think the city kind of represents kind of modernity in many ways. And there's always kind of like cars whizzing round and all these types of things. And I don't know if the film's sort of saying that these two, you know, these two simple souls, this this world isn't quite right. for them. Like you say, you know, they, sort of, there's lots of scenes where they're kind of walking and it, it will suddenly fade into like they're going through like a forest or something like that. And then they're kissing. And then the next thing, we sort of fade into the fact that they're causing a massive traffic jam. And you watch the film and it's sort of like, my whenever I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it, I think at least you need to get out of here. This place isn't, you know, like they are, like you say, they're completely detached from it in a way, Um, especially, you know, when they go to the barbers and um also oh, the hairdressers or whatever it is, when he's having a shave and they're trying to kind of do her hair and things like that. She's like, you know, don't touch me, get off. You know, I need to keep this ridiculous wig on. And it's just <laughs> like, it's almost like, you know, kind of like, you know, they're they're not made for this world of fast moving kind of you know
2: not urban. only not only that but i feel like there's more temptation in the city and if you can feel like the characters it doesn't seem like they're trusting one another quite yet so they need to be removed from temptation to be able to survive as a couple
0: yeah and yeah totally and you know, to sort of get back to kind of like you know farming and living in their their sparse huts mm. you know that's that's that is the life that, that, that they're made for. I mean, it reminds me of um, uh, a Jacques Tati film. Um, I can't remember the title, of it actually, but it's, I think it might just be The Postman or something like that. It made in 1947 where it sort of shows this little tiny town in France where everything is just kind of this pre-modernity and it's probably best off that it stays that way because when they kind of introduce kind of like you know, automated post-sorting system, just all chaos breaks loose. And, it, you know, it's kind of a comedy of errors really, but Sunrise is... I, I think it's kind of treading a similar path of sort of saying, you know, yes we have kind of like modernity but it might not be the best thing for everyone and for mm. these two characters you know, that they kind of, their simple um, existence is really kind of you know, where they can kind of be, you know, thrive as a couple as it were.
2: I was reminded of Sean um, Vigo's uh, La as well and also another Murnau film that he made uh, a few years later called City Girl which is also a master of cinema which is it's kind of the opposite of um, of Sunrise in um, what type of story it tells. But um, it's quite interesting, uh, Double Bill, when you watch yeah. this one and City Girl.
1: How, how do you guys feel about the performances in Silent Film and particularly in this film? Because, you know, obviously it's a very different style.
0: If you go in watching a film like this, expecting to see, you know, the performances that we're all raised on are... You know, the hero looking mournfully off, you know, like, you know, think like Russell Crowe in Gladiator is to me like the archetypal type of Hollywood performance. You know, it's 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 all there on the screen in his face and, you know, in the line delivery. It's it's all there. If you if you go into watching a film like this, expecting to see something very similar. I I think that's when people look at film silent films and they go, oh, you know, I, I can't take this sort of deliberate kind of mournful looks. I personally love it. Um, I, I, it doesn't really bother me at all and I, I find the performance in this film, I actually think they're really good performances Um, especially from, sorry, what's the lead guy's name again, sorry? Uh, George O'Brien Yeah, George O'Brien, I think it's a really good performance actually, I really feel I, I look. I, I believe it um, certainly, I, I I, believe the fact when he's in the church asking her to forgive him and he's crying I, I, I buy those moments, I don't sort of look at them and think, oh look at this kind of hammy stagey acting, I, it, it works for me totally
2: I agreed with you until you mentioned your favourite performance, but uh, I, I don't have a problem with uh, silent cinema. So, sorry, just to clarify, my favourite performance, are we talking about the gladiator? No, uh, we're yeah, talking so, about George O'Brien.
0: Oh, sorry, no, no, um, no just to clarify. Yeah, Muscle uh, G- Crown Gladiator is not my favourite performance of <laughs> all time. That's oh, no. she's Scott in Patton. Okay. I just want to get that out there right now. Carry on.
2: Um, but uh, I don't have any problem with... Um, yeah, the acting that we find in Silma, actually, I do enjoy it. And but I feel like George O'Brien is uh, my least favorite performance in this film. I feel Janet Gaynor and um, Margaret Lynwood, I think her name is. Uh, I think uh, those two performances are well above and beyond uh, O'Brien's. I feel like he's, as opposed to you, I don't, I can't really get into his character. I can't really believe him uh, in the same way that uh, Gaynor for example you know, sort of traps me in with her innocence. I think there's
1: um, a, a, a lovely uh, simplicity and, and appeal to Gaynor. Um, I saw a film yesterday, I was doing a bit of watching around Sunrise as, as prep and I saw a film called Street Angel and again she, she has this really simple Uh, appeal about her there's something um, that just draws you to her and I think that's really uh, key to how she is in Sunrise Um, Hmm. you know and and why you identify with uh, the wife so much and I think she's great in the film I also uh, agree with you Tom I think um, that uh, O'Brien's really really good particularly in that church scene that you mentioned Um, so I think you know it's a style that you have to get used to, much like, uh, actually, classical Hollywood talky acting, you know, in, in the 40s and 50s, you know, has this very sort of different style that, than what we're used to. Um, so it's an adjustment. But once you make it, uh, I think you see that there's, there's some really wonderful acting going on here, and, you know, you just have to tune in to, to the level that it's on, I
0: think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, acting style it's, yeah, like I say, it's evolved over the years. And, um, this is just part of the evolution of the craft of acting mm. that you're seeing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, like I say, I mean, I've, you know, seen a lot of short films now. And, um, you know, like all performances, there are good ones and there are bad ones. And, uh, I personally find the, 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 the acting in this to be completely, um, yeah believable for for what it's trying to achieve you know i mean it 's an expressionist it 's heavily stylized expressionistic acting and mm. it, it it works for me I do enjoy the female characters, yeah it has to be said the woman from the city i mean I, I love how she looks and the you know the cigarette dangling out of her mouth you know it's sort of a, you know, as, as I understand uh, women who smoked in those days it was a kind of a bit of a bit. They were pretty classless, those that did, although I'm sure like 99% of the population smoked in those days. It was was, was when it was good for you, I seem to remember. She's very much a sort
1: of proto femme fatale as well, isn't she? I mean, in the dress, in the makeup, the hairstyle, the cigarette, you know, it's all very noir, Uh, particularly that first scene when you see her, you know, in her uh, nightgown and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I, I, and I said another thing as well. I mean, the films, you know, it, it definitely um, shows. I mean, you, you see, like um, the wife, you know, she's always kind of very prissy, isn't she? And that that the woman from the is kind of like rolling around in a nighty, and it's quite <laughs> daring. It's quite, you know, yeah, she's a uh, pretty scantily clad. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's perfect for the character, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, you know, it's creating her to be this archetypal, uh, you know, uh, yeah, temptress, I suppose. It's I interesting
2: of... the the opening scene with her. Uh, when she's approaching the, the couple that is uh, sitting at this canted uh, table uh, and the old woman, she goes to polish her shoes or something. She looks like this glamazon woman. This uh, She's uh, like this 60-foot woman t- uh, towering yeah. over this small uh, older lady. It's interesting just um, yeah, how she's portrayed in the film.
0: Is it ever established what she's actually doing in the sea in the village anyway? Like why she's there?
2: A vacation, I think it was.
1: Yeah, I think you see all the people arriving on vacation at, at the beginning of right. the film, and you know it says that she's been there for a few weeks.
0: Right, right. Well, <laughs> why has she gone there on not I don't want to think about it too much. It might might detract from thing. I suppose we can kind of like move on from. The, I mean, move on from the city to kind of the, the going back to to the village because um, this is where the film you know takes a, It becomes almost like an adventure film. In a way, this this last bit because we have this incredible storm. And I just want to talk a little bit about this, how the storm works. Because I was watching it again this morning, and um, it's the bit where it shows the fair being ravaged by thought And God knows how many wind turbines they must have had going on on that set, because you can literally see people almost falling over. Mm. And you of thinking, like health and safety in those days, I'm sure, was pretty much sort of you know, well if you get injured, that's your fault type of mentality. It was unbelievable.
1: Well, I mean, it was, a, it was a different film in a different period, but um, Lillian Gish, in terms of, you know, health and safety in Silent Era, I think in Orphans of the Storm, she has to lie on an ice floe, and she right. was there so long at a certain point that not only did she nearly die, um, but I think she had permanent damage in her arm from it. Jesus. Uh, so, you know, from, from the, the cold at that point, and, yeah, it was... It was not a time when actors were really allowed to complain about how they were being treated, it seems. But the storm is is brilliantly realised. And again, it's all practical. And, you know, that's something... There's a a visceral feeling to it that, you know, even if it's uh, created on a set, which I think a lot of it is, you know, there's a visceral reality to it that, that seems to have gone missing in recent Hollywood cinema, you know, with the growth of CGI and things like that. There's nothing real happening anymore, and just on that level, I really appreciate it. You know, um, it, even apart from the, you know, ca- a casual attitude they may have had to help them safety.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I can only go back to a Man of Steel, which is, you know, yeah. I'm watching that, and I'm just like, I, I don't buy it at all. I don't, I don't sit there. I don't feel any danger or peril for the characters because it's just wall to wall animation it's like a computer game it's an end of level baddie bit on a computer game as far as i'm concerned i don't believe it i don't buy it i don't i don't see when you know someone slams into a bit of concrete i don't feel the pain because it's just you know, the way the bodies move you know it's clearly just sort of being rendered in a computer i don't buy the fact that when someone smashes into something still you know you don't feel it at all and it, yeah it, it leaves me completely numb and you know it just knocks you over the head this though um you feel the danger you actually feel that this you know, the characters and the people running around um on screen are genuinely in danger and it was it's weird going back to it because i i, I don't rem- i don't remember feeling like that watching a film for a long time you know actually sort of believing what i'm seeing on screen is actually happening in the real world and you know the 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 stuff on the boat um I, I, should, I mean, yeah, I imagine you know there was, it's not the water. It's obviously being filmed in a tank, and that water. It's not like you know the perfect storm, where it's just CGI water hitting the boat. You know, you're just sort of thinking, oh look, here comes another CGI wave, and you're sort of taken out of it. this side. You know, I, I was I was genuinely scared for these people, and you know, getting that's a to, to say that about a film made in 1927. Um, yeah, I think it's a testament really to how technically good it is.
1: I think it's also a testament to how well the city sequence has worked because. You know, you probably shouldn't be feeling too scared for the husband, certainly at this point.
2: Yeah, I completely. Agree. I mean, what you, what are your kind of thoughts on it? I completely agree that just in terms of the foundation that is laid in the city, it certainly reaps its benefits now that we are getting such a uh, an adventurous ending. To say that. Because I mean, I suppose the thing is, I mean, we've seen this
0: guy try and kill him, and now we're expected to kind of buy the fact that you know he's kind of madly in love with her again, and he's suddenly become the devoted, besotted husband. But one bit that does make me laugh is when he tries to throttle the woman um, from the city because he's still—he's clearly got a, a dark side to him. This guy, I think. Mm. I mean, he's a—you uh, know, its he, hes you know, he genuinely looks like he's, he's going to kill her as well. And it's still sort of thinking to yourself, you know, you've only got yourself to blame here, mate.
2: You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you're the one who went along with it. I mean, he's, he has his hands around her neck and he's strangling her, so he's, he nearly finishes the job. But that uh, that scene where he's trying to strangle the woman from the city is, uh, is one of my favourite scenes, because just because of the focus and how they move all the way from the background into focus in the foreground, and just uh, an incredible use of lighting and camera work and character moment and everything is just come together so brilliantly.
1: It's also an interesting bookend because he does actually do that in one of the earlier scenes with The Woman in the City I and mean, is Yeah. It's not quite so serious, but I think it's when she first suggests killing the wife. Yeah. Um, you know, again he's got his hands around her throat and uh, you know, there's there's something really scary about that guy that again you just sort of it to the back of your mind. It's, uh, I'm amazed how that works, but yeah, it in terms of uh, the way it echoes, it's a, a really interesting bookend.
0: Yeah, and I mean, this being a sort of a melodrama, of of course, we have to kind of go through the, the the moment where you know he thinks she's dead. But I like the fact as well that they're kind of um, the the reeds that he was going to use to um, was he going to? I think he was going to. She gets him to make some reeds, doesn't she? Mm. Which he was going to then use, but he actually in the end um, he uses them to save the girl mm-hmm. which i thought was a nice way of kind of you know, reintroducing those and kind of I, mean, sorry, I say basically kind of echoing kind of what went on in the the beginning of the film but i mean it's little things as well i like like the, the lightning strikes as well that you can see um over the village and in the sky i mean they're obviously kind of animated but again i mean I, they, they look pretty incredible um as far as i'm concerned i mean it's a brilliantly composed um scene and you know the, the the pace of the film quickens a great deal as well during this moment it really kind of changes style and it's kind of quite choppy and um you know, again going back to something a film like Elysium that I saw there are certain parts of that film where the, the editing was so fast and so choppy I couldn't really follow what was going on it was like watching you know this kind of crazy stuff with this so you're always aware of kind of the relationship between where the boat is out in the water how far away it is from the coast you know it, it, it's well Directed action scenes. I think it's certainly you know, very easy mm. to follow and flows very very well. It doesn't seem to kind of um, kind of lose sight of what it's doing. And I, you know, again, again, I think that's a testament to really. Someone like Murnau because in this film he, he's at the top of his game, I suppose, isn't he?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I share your distaste for how uh, action in Hollywood is is shot at the moment, <laughs> particularly as an action film fan. And yes, I, I think that sequence is. is realise in terms of the cutting as well, you know, you're always sure of the geography of what's going on, you're always on the edge of your seat, you know, um, and while the pace is there, it's never so fast that it's confusing, it's, it's always keeping you scared on the edge of your seat, but in full knowledge of what's happening, I think, is, is the key balance.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like I mean the best example I can give it is something like um, Ridley Scott's directing in um, Black Hawk Down, is you're always a completely aware of the geography of the battlefield, and yeah. certain directors they they lose sight of that. You sort of like, God, um, what film was it? Well, actually, just contrast it and um, Ridley Scott's film Legend, um, that that the kind of the geography of that film and what's going on, it completely loses me. I have no idea where or when we are but it's it's such an art and you know only good directors can really kind of pull that off and um you know yeah it's it's the film's kind of change pace so much and it's still i don't don't think it sticks out the end scene it doesn't sort of it feel it does feel part of the film but it is so radically different from what's gone before and i mean just little things as well i mean like when there's a scene when the woman from the city's lying in bed asleep and you see kind of like people walking past the windows with all these lanterns. And there's this kind of like weird kind of kaleidoscope effect of the lights. And it's it's just those t- tiny attentions to detail that make this film stand out. And like I said before, you can just go back to it and just watch those moments and kind of take them in again. Um, yeah, it's it's absolutely epic stuff. Um, I mean, overall, I mean, you know, I, I like that. I, I mean, some of kind of changed the way I, I feel and think about films. I mean, what are your kind of like final thoughts on it?
1: I think it's a beautiful film, I think it's an effective film, I think, would I put it at number five in the the list of the greatest films of all time, like Sight and Sound did recently? No, no, probably not, but is it a great film, is it a film that I'll go back to and draw stuff from over and over again? Yeah, absolutely. And also, it's a film that makes me interested in the period and the people who are in it, I mean... Like I said, I started watching some uh, Janet Gaynor stuff yesterday um, as a bit more homework for, for the show. And, you know, that really paid off. Street Angel is, is a really interesting film, and I've got two other Frank Edge films that she's in.
2: Uh, Joachim, what are your kind of final thoughts on it? It's a brilliant film. Uh, I feel, uh, despite all of the smaller things that I've mentioned, I think it's comparable with something like we mentioned... Uh, James Cameron and Avatar and you could mention Citizen Kane and Olsen Wells, just in terms of its place in cinema history and what it has done for the furtherment of uh, film and just it's a beautiful film. You will definitely get a lot out of every viewing of it so um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can only kind of echo what I said. I, you know, I, going back to what you were saying, actually, Sam, about kind of you know the the, the sight and soundness. So we're got kind of a quick tangent here, but what are your kind of thoughts in general on those kind of top ten lists and top one hundred lists? The fact that we can have this kind of idea that there's a best film of all time. Because I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I would probably put this in the top ten films of all time. I although I, I, I kind of I don't really like those things. I mean, do you kind of enjoy those types of lists, or you know, do you, do you feel that they're necessary in a way?
1: I think those lists are interesting, um, the films that end up on them are generally not the films that I would put on them, um, because, like I said, I'm, I'm interested in genre cinema very much and the problem I think with a lot of those lists is that they tend to restrict themselves to films that are, are much older, first of all, and also are... Of a particular sort of inverted commas artistically respectable type, you know, and yeah. like I was saying earlier, I just think that interesting cinema, uh, cinema worth celebrating, goes far beyond the official, like inverted commas, canon um, of, of classic cinema. But those films are really interesting, and I certainly use those lists as, you know, ways of. Filling in gaps in what I
2: see. Yeah, I mean, Joachim, what are your kind of thoughts on general those types of lists? I'm a fan in a respect that I use them as you said, Sam, to fill in the gaps of what I, what I should see or what I, what I want to see in film history. Um, just in terms of trying to get a bigger picture of what a film is. But I don't really subscribe to the fact or to the notion that one is necessarily better than the other it's not like vertigo it's such a better film than something like citizen kane just because it's number one and now citizen kane is number two uh it's just yeah if it's on the list i think it's um enough for me to try to watch it and critique it for myself but um yeah the the number that it, that's on the list it, it doesn't really hold much uh, relevance for me yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's weird because I mean, uh, it, I mean, there was a lot of kind of
0: like when people that Sight and Sound came list. I mean, there was that, you know, there was discussions going on in the BBC about it and things like that. And it was like, I think a lot of people were kind of mistaking it as like, you know, this is some sort of like official doctrine that's been handed down by the kind of the government of cinema to say well, that you know. Vertigo, in a way,
1: it seems to have been though. You know, for the last fifty years, Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made, and if you say otherwise, you're wrong a lot of the time. You know, I I do feel that as somebody who's actually not a huge fan of Citizen Kane. It, you know, I, I recognise it as a groundbreaking and interesting film, but do I have a desire to watch it very often? No, not really.
2: Right, thank you, Sam, for joining us. No, sorry.
1: You see what I mean? You know, it's like this monolithic thing. So I think I think that's, you know, an interesting discussion to be had.
0: Yeah, it's strange because I mean, someone I mean, someone the other day was asking me, um, like, well, so in reference to the Sight and Sound poll, and they were saying, "Oh, I've never seen Vertigo. Is is it the best film ever made?" And I was like, um, "Well, no, no, not not anywhere close." I mean, I would put Sunrise, but but you know, this is the kind of thing—you sort kind of get into this sort of crazy game of kind of shifting these things up and down. And I, I, I was echoing what you are saying there is an i think such an elitist kind of view of these films almost like a film needs at least 15 years to be considered before you know, yeah. can kind of take it seriously and um yeah i i find them to be i enjoy them in a way And like let's say I, I can kind of pick a few films out and it's quite nice when to be quite smug when you look at them and go oh, i've seen that and you know i, I can say i've seen like 85 out of the top 100 film you know yada yada but yeah go back to what we were saying earlier really you know, Films like like The Evil Dead and things like that—they're never, ever, ever going to get anywhere near those lists. And and what was really interesting to me um, it, on those polls is they did like one of the directors um, talking about their favorite films. And Michael Mann put Avatar in the top ten best films ever made. And I, I sort of thinking to myself, well, it just shows how you know opinion and you know how personal film is that you I, know someone can legit, legitimately say, oh, it's, it's one of the top ten. Well, there's no, there's nothing to say. You know, if in 10, 10 years the next science sign poll avatar was number three film in in the best films ever made list you you know if if that's what people think then it's got a legitimate it's not one of the best films ever made here to me but it is one of the most important in terms of kind of you know like summarize what it kind of has done for cinema i suppose but people said they were
1: surprised about michael mann putting avatar on his list i really wasn't that's an incredibly blue film (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i guess so yeah he must have been yeah he must have watched that and gone oh my god yeah blue people i don't even need, he hasn't even used filters you <laughs> here we go yeah you know it's was, it was, it was just interesting you know to kind of uh you know because when i saw sunrise on that list i thought yeah, yeah it definitely deserves to be there p- perhaps even higher but i mean someone was saying to me um that they'd never heard of any of those films. I think Man with the Movie camera had kind of found its way back on there and hmm. it was yeah, it, it was it, it raised an interesting debate. I just I just thought it kind of people were taking it so seriously and so sort of like, you know, this is it now, you know, that that's it. Vertigo's the best film, there's there's no change in that. I said, yeah, come on, you know, let's sort of you know be a little bit more kind of open minded. But you yeah, know, certainly I think Sunrise belongs in that kind of category as being, you know, I suppose that kind of upper echelon of film. But right. anyway,
1: uh, I assume you guys have got your own lists on Letterboxd. Uh, I certainly have.
0: I haven't actually done my list. I've done one on the blog, I think. Um, I, no, I, I think on my on my blog I've done it sort of like my top ten war films and westerns and science fiction films. I don't think I've done a definitive uh, top one hundred list. I, it was, uh... I, I have the top
2: four, I think. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm revising my top fifty at the moment. I'm, you know, but uh, there is a version of my top fifty on my Letterboxd.
0: And um, what is your, actually out of interest, what is your kind of like your, your top films of all time? Um, well, uh, hang on, let me, because it's... Get, get you
1: listening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because <laughs> sometimes it's it's a bit hard to remember the exact order. Um, it's it's going to be kind of embarrassing, but I can give you the 10.
0: <laughs> go on, go on,
1: yeah. Um, um, okay, so 10 to 1, then you can laugh at me and pull me apart here. Um, Back to the Future, uh, Bringing Up Baby, um, I've got a, a couple of much more modern films in here, Dogtooth, which I, I think is a, a masterpiece, uh, The Red Shoes, uh, Martyrs is the one that will probably divide people, but I, I think that's a, a stunning film.
2: Uh, Martyrs? I don't think I've seen I've, that I've not, I've not heard of that.
1: It's an incredibly extreme French horror film. Uh,
2: Ah, yeah.
1: Brutal as hell, but astonishing, I think. Um, The Princess Bride.
0: Oh, no, can I just interject on The Princess Bride? Yeah. (laughs) I do not... Perhaps I'm just, like, emotionally dead, or I'm just a miserable bastard. I do not... (laughs) I do not see... Why anyone likes that film? It's not funny. (laughs) It's not funny. It's not entertaining. I just sat there thinking. Perhaps the 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 mistake I fell into was like someone said, "Oh, this film brilliant." And I've had all these wonderful things about. Sat there thought, God, this is absolutely painful to get through. I I didn't laugh once. I just, I don't know. I I I,
1: I don't understand you (laughs) as as a person anymore. I you know I. I'm just a bit lost. Um, anyway, before sunrise and before sunset are, are a joint one. Lucas Mudison's first film, fucking Amal, um, also known as Show Me Love. This movie. Um, the last picture show, and my favourite film of all time is uh, Badlands.
0: Oh, bad, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. again, I mean, um, apart from The Princess Bride, I've not seen Martyrs. It sounds like a good film to watch on a date, actually. I think, um, <laughs> so sit down it's, and watch I'll, I'll be Tra- Tra- Travis Bickle style. <laughs> yeah. Come on, let's, let's watch this. It really tells you loads about me. Let's watch it. <laughs> no, um, no. I, again, yeah, you know, um, it's something we should, we should actually perhaps we should do, you know, Kim, is do a poll or something like that and uh, kind of get some lists and the feedback as to kind of the favourite films. Because uh, I'm always hmm. interested to hear people's lists because, hey, again, you know, when you kind of do those, you know, just giving your films there, I mean, legitimate. The you know, if people will say, you know, well, what about your know, favourite films and that kind of thing? Well, th- th- those films have got a legitimate, you know, sense to be on any kind of top 100 list i think that's why they're kind of the so sort of ob- objective all those types of things but um you anything else we need to add on this
2: uh we can start talking about the uh packaging itself yeah
0: definitely um i think we can all agree that this is one of the best master cinema releases
2: yeah definitely um i didn't watch the czech version uh this time around Um, Because there are two versions of the film. There's the movie tone version, which is the uh, regular American 93 minute film. And there's the Czech version, which is 79 minutes, uh, which has um, slightly better material to start with uh, in terms of picture quality. But um, I didn't get a chance to watch that one this time.
1: I, I did look at the Czech version and it is... Gorgeous. I mean, the image is beyond stunning. But it feels kind of like watching a Reader's Digest version of the film. You know, (laughs) because the things that are taken out are taken out in little bits from almost uh, all of the, the shots. You know, so almost everything is shorter and adds up to about a reel of footage. So it just feels like It moves too fast and Mm. it's been just, yeah, abridged rather than cut down, you know? So It's
2: interesting to note that uh, there are two different aspect ratios for the two versions as well. Um, The movie tone version is uh, 120 to 1 and the Czech version is 137 to 1.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I've, I've watched a Czech version too, Yeah, and the, the the image quality is noticeably better. But like you said, I mean, it, you, you feel like you're watching a diet version of the film because there was a, an issue, wasn't there, with, with I think the um, original negative of this was lost, wasn't it? I think it was burnt in a fire or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, kind of cobbled together and it's one of those kind of, um, you know, Good, good stories where, you know, these kind of various versions are found. I mean, I, you're talking about the image quality, when I bought the Blu ray of this, um, I bought it in HB and the guy behind the counter went, is it even worth buying films like this on Blu ray? And really? I sort of stood there looking at him and I was like, oh. So, and, they, you know, it's no wonder h and V went in administration, really. You know, I just sort of said, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's like seeing them again new for the first time. Although I have heard an argument recently, um, perhaps one you know, quickly talk about, which is the fact that Blu-ray, um, the, the transfers they do on these, um, they show things that perhaps weren't intended to be shown by well, the director.
1: That was one thing that put me off um, in the early days of Blu-ray before I adopted, was there was a review and some stills that I saw of Psycho which basically showed that the image quality was so good that you could see the makeup on the actor's face. I was like, well, I don't want to see the makeup on the, you know. I want the makeup yeah. to be the makeup. I don't want to notice it. You know, that's totally against the idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, one of the worst examples of, of that is um the, the John Woo film. I mean, it's a slightly new film, but the John Woo film, um, Red Cliff. You can actually see, like, the netting in people's hair pieces and things like that and it's so distracting and 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 one of the one of the debates i was actually listening to regarding um the image quality was that yeah you can see things in the image but you know certainly kind of like technical things like um you know someone's i can't remember what film it was but it was it was an old silent film they're saying the blu-ray you could sort of see almost like the studio you know in in the background as it were in some shots and it's not meant to be there and I wonder, you know, if, um, kind of when they are kind of doing these kind of transfers and stuff, how how mindful they are because I, I I didn't notice it so much in this. To be honest with you, I thought it was for, for what it is and the kind of the state of the picture. I think it's a, a pretty incredible Blu-ray um, yeah. picture quality. And I mean, the other one as well that I got everything is the um, the sound as well on this. It's a uh, you know just a stereo soundtrack, but I I, I do like the music in this is
2: where well. It works quite well with the film. I think. Do you have a preferred version of because there are two soundtracks to the film as well? Yeah.
0: Um, I think it was what was the version I was watching. Um, there's the Olympic Chamber Orchestra, and yeah. there was, I think that's the one, yeah. Um, but also, I mean, um, the this I mean, it's, it's three discs. I, mean, I think the other two is just DVDs, aren't they, of the, of the different versions? Mm. But I mean, um, yeah. Overall, I, I, I think it's one of the kind of the, the best Blu-rays they've actually put out. Should we also mention the feature about Four Devils? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Because I
1: desperately want to see Four Devils. You know, um, it's a a sort of video essay, very dry, actually, and the voiceover is really quite dull, um, in in terms of the tone, not what it's imparting Yeah. Um, but the insight into this lost film of Murnau's, um, a circus set, uh, drama called Four Devils, it, it just sounds amazing, I really desperately want to see it, um... And it it doesn't seem like it's turned up anywhere um, in the interim. But, you know, that's got to be surely along with stuff like London After Midnight, you know, one of the holy grails of uh, lost films.
0: Yeah, if you've had London After Midnight, I hear people talk about like it's the best film ever made. And I'm like, you've never seen it. No one has. <laughs> it's <just sort> of, <laughs> they take this sort of metrics. I mean, it's like, oh, it's, it's, it'll be incredible. It's like, wow, well, do you know? I mean, it's just because it, you know, no one's seen it. But no, I know what you mean. It's so frustrating um, the fact that, you know, it, it and it, it's kind of quite nice, isn't it? That like, it might be out there, mm. you know, somewhere waiting to be discovered. And we'll oh, sorry, my cat's joined us. Um, it's
2: alongside Magnificent Amberson in yeah, the sat in it, or something. Uh, yeah, there's that. Yeah, yeah. Kim O'Young's probably got the only copy.
0: <laughs> uh, sat there he's he's, he's he's got it in his vault and he just he, he watches it every night just to annoy everyone in the west you know I mean? but, yeah um yeah I, I certainly hope that's the case but um yeah it, it's it's a great feature and like i said that the, yeah the voiceover is a little bit droll they tend to be sometimes on those things a bit very sort of earnest and uh, quite monotone but um yeah it's, commentary it's a
2: commentary from john bailey that is uh, very interesting yeah uh, he's very good at um sort of relating it to his occupation as a cinematographer. Yeah, so it's always cool to hear,
0: you know, people in the in the know, um, kind of talking about it. I think he actually worked with one of the cinematographers on it, or he was his assistant, I think. Um
2: He was the assistant of uh, Nestor Almendros, who was um, a big fan of the film. But he, I right. I don't think he was related to the, the film itself. I I heard him mention I think he worked on Badlands, didn't he as well, I think, if mm. when we served, he
0: was saying that. But yeah, no, that's a really entertaining um commentary when you're certainly one of the better ones and um...
1: I'm, I'm not often a fan of the more sort of scholarly commentary but i think this one really strikes a nice balance you know it's it's definitely uh analytical but it's coming from a, a technical perspective rather than sort of a, a film studies perspective which is the thing that sometimes kind of puts me off the, those hmm. commentaries um and this is a, a commentary that i think is really really interesting if you've got any um, ambition of making films, you know, it will be a real grounding
0: actually in cinematography. Yeah. I mean, you know, but like saying, I think the film in general, yes, is a, you know, okay. a kind of you know, a pretty, uh, you know, a good um, kind of film school. And definitely that commentary, you know, is um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's up there. It's so it's just so interesting hearing someone talk about it. And he, he can tell, he, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about when he's talking about, it, he was saying like how he'd seen stills from the film and then, like, in his own way, kind of, like, pieced together how they pulled some of the shots off. And it's, like, that kind of thing, yeah, almost kind of like this kind of detective work through watching, you know, just seeing stills and stuff. And I was, I was loving that. It's kind of geeky thing that, you know, you, know you, you people people like us, I suppose, kind of really kind of uh, react to. But, I mean, yeah, brilliant stuff all around, really. Um, anything else we need to add about it, do you think?
2: Uh, it is region free, even though it says region B on the back. Yeah, I was about to correct you then, actually, because I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're yeah. Friend, don't you? No, um, but it is region free, actually. Um same applies for the other Murnau film, City Girl um and how, and how do you know that sorry just to clarify uh, just says it on both wikipedia and several different forums that have uh, confirmed it so
0: okay yeah blu-ray.com up on that now and it says um it is region free and um yes yeah, so let's just see what blu-ray.com uh gave this actually it's always quite a good source i think for uh think, yeah they actually gave the video quality five out of five on hmm. this which i think is probably a testament to kind of the job done um and uh four and a half out of five for the sound yeah which i certainly kind of agree with those obviously you have to kind of take it it's not going to be it's not going to look like avatar let's be honest with you but i mean i think for what what it is and from you know the state of the negative and things like that it's a really good transfer and uh yeah certainly um well worth picking up um i think you can get it for like 10 pounds at the moment on amazon i think it's quite a uh, uh 9.99 by the looks of things so definitely well worth checking out okay so on um, this boat we'll do our plugging sam um plug away where can we find more of you on the internet
1: www.24fps.org.uk is my uh, main website. That's uh, where you can find all my reviews. You can find the Picture Show, uh, my podcast. I haven't done an episode for a while, but uh, there's one coming very soon an LFF preview. Uh, Picture Show podcast.blogspot.co.uk And you can check me out on Twitter at 24FPSUK.
0: Brilliant stuff. Joachim, where can they find us?
2: You can find us at moccast.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter at moc underscore cast. And we're also on Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram as well. And you can email us at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com and let us know what you think of Sunrise.
0: Yeah, you can find me at 24 That's my other podcast and 24framecast on Twitter. Um, Sam, many thanks for coming on board with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for having me. It's been great. Yeah, hopefully we'll have you back soon. So that's going to be us, uh, it from us. Uh, many thanks for listening and we'll be in contact soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye.